Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. We've been doing a study of the teaching of the Bible on the subject of the Trinity and why it is that if we believe everything that the Bible has to say, we will be forced to a belief in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. We've defined the Trinity as the teaching that in the one eternal being of God, there are three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have emphasized the need to recognize that the doctrine of the Trinity is talking about one what, the being of God, and three who's, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these divine persons. And we're looking at what the Bible says about these beliefs. We've now come to the third of the biblical foundations. The first of the biblical foundations was biblical monotheism, the fact that there is only one true God. The second of these foundations was the existence of three divine persons. And we could have looked at many other texts in Matthew chapter 3, for example, where the Father speaks from heaven and the Son is being baptized and the Spirit descends as a dove. Many other texts that teach this same thing. But we are, are constrained by time to, to move on to the third of the biblical foundations, and that is the material in the Bible that teaches the equality of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Now, obviously, if we see that the Bible teaches the full deity of Christ, that he is indeed equal with the Father in participation with deity, and then we see the Father, Son, and Spirit being associated at all times, then we can see that the Bible does teach this third foundation. But there are a few things to remember. When we talk about the deity of Christ, we need to remember that we as Christians often allow ourselves to be put in a very difficult position when dialoguing with other people. For example, this is the one point where followers of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society or Jehovah's Witnesses like to focus their attention. They attack the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And many Christians, when they are trying to defend the doctrine of the deity of Christ, even against someone who believes that the Bible is the word of God, or at least pretends to believe that, they may have other uh, beliefs that come in, in the way and, and they don't accept exactly what the, the Bible has to say about those things. They have other authorities. But even when they accept the Bible to be the word of God, very rarely do Christians insist that they apply the same standards to their position as they are applying to ours. What I mean by that is, if someone is going to deny the deity of Christ, then they need to give a positive presentation of who they think Jesus is. If they're going to say that Jesus, for example, is Michael the archangel, as Jehovah's Witnesses do, then they need to explain how Jesus said many of the things that he said. For example, would Michael the archangel ever say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? So many of the things that Jesus said would be utter blasphemy in the mouth of a mere creature. So they have to be asked to give a positive defense of their views of Christ at the same time that they are asking us to do that exact thing. We need to function on the same foundation, on the same basis. Now, I'd like to point out to you that there are basically three categories of evidence for the deity of Christ. We have those texts that use the word God in describing Jesus. Those would be the most obvious ones. Those are the ones that people talk about most often. But then there is another whole area of evidence demonstrating that the New Testament writers believed that Jesus Christ was fully God because they drew from the Old Testament text 
the name Yahweh, or as sometimes you hear it pronounced Jehovah, they took that divine name and they used it of their Lord and Savior Jesus. Now, since they are monotheists and they are self-professed uh, believers in the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to take that divine name and apply it to Jesus in unique ways, take descriptions of Jehovah that could only be about him and apply them to Jesus proves, of course, that they believed in the full deity of Christ. They would never do that to Michael the archangel or to some creature. But then there is also the ascription of divine attributes and activities to Christ as well. So there's a whole spectrum of evidence that demonstrates the deity of Christ. We can only look at a small portion of it in the time that we have together. So let's begin with that first category of evidence, the use of God in describing Jesus Christ. There are a number of texts, specifically John 20, 28, Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 are together. Hebrews 1.6-8, Isaiah 9.6, and John 1.1. 1, 1. These will be the texts that we will look at in our study today. Obviously, that's a number of texts and we'll have to move fairly quickly. In John chapter 20, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an encounter that takes place between Thomas and Jesus. Thomas is not present the first time that the resurrected Jesus appears to the apostles. And he, in fact, expresses some doubt concerning the resurrection. He says, unless I, I see him, unless I touch his hands and see the wound prints, I will not believe. And so when Jesus does appear in John chapter 20, and he demonstrates that he had divine knowledge of what Thomas had said even in his absence before, he then says to Thomas in verse 27, reach here with your finger and see my hands, reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And notice Thomas's response. He says, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him in verse 29, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, a simple reading of the text is straightforward. Thomas does not even have to do what Jesus says. He does not have to examine the wound prints. As soon as he sees Jesus and he understands that Jesus knew about his doubt, he confesses faith and he calls Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus then blesses this confession of faith. It says, because you have seen, have you believed? He doesn't rebuke Thomas. He accepts that and he then pronounces a blessing upon those who, while not seeing, have believed as well. Now, how does anyone get around this? How do any of the groups that deny the deity of Christ and yet pretend that they believe in the inspiration of scriptures get around it? Well, Believe it or not, the most common way, especially amongst Jehovah's Witnesses, followers of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, is to look at verse 28 and say, well, what Thomas did was, looking at Jesus, he said, my Lord, my God, as if it was almost a, a, an improper use of the name of God. There is nothing in the underlying Greek text that supports this in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's the, the specific language says that he spoke these words to Jesus. All these words were spoken to Jesus. And just as my Lord would naturally be taken as my Lord, my God must be taken in the exact same way. And had Thomas used such language, then Jesus would have rebuked him immediately. But instead, Jesus blesses his confession of faith. There simply is no way around the fact 
that Jesus accepted Thomas's description of him as his Lord and his God. The next text may not be quite as clear uh, to some, depending on the translation that you have. And I will let you know that in some of these texts, there is a possibility of rendering it in a different way. So, for example, in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, we read these words. Whose are the fathers, referring to the Jews, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God-blessed forever? Now, some translations actually say, who is God over all forever blessed? And so there is some ambiguity here, and so I present this as a possible use of the word God in reference to Jesus, recognizing that some might see it as less certain than it truly is. But there are actually a number of reasons to accept the reading that, in fact, he is called the God who is over all, who is forever blessed. Certainly many of the early Christians who, who could read Greek understood it this way. And if you examine Paul's overall use of language and syntax, that likewise is the most likely reading of this particular text in Romans chapter 9. And even in the context, it would be substantiated by a fair reading of Paul's words. And so we have the word God used in John 20, 28 by Thomas. It is probably used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 5. And it is most certainly used by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to Titus in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is talking about the, the fact that the grace of God teaches us to live a godly life. And it instructs us to deny ungodliness. And then in verse 13, Paul says this, that we as believers are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, this text actually helps us to truly understand what Paul is saying by context. What do I mean by that? Two things. There is only one person being discussed in Titus 2, 13 and 14. So those who would say, well, verse 13, it's really only saying we're looking for the, the glory of our great God, one person, and then our Savior, Jesus Christ, have to introduce a second person into the text. But then when it goes on, verse 14, it's only talking about one person who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And that, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ. But the underlying Greek text is very clear. Scholars have identified what is called Granville Sharp's rule. Granville Sharp was an English abolitionist at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And he studied in depth the way that the Greek language uses articles and the word and. And he discovered that in the Greek language, when you have a certain construction where the first noun has an article and the second noun does not have the article and they're joined by the word and, both nouns are referring to the same person. Now, he was very specific in what context this could be true. He was very, very clear on these things. And when you follow that rule consistently, Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1, both are Granville Sharp constructions. And they demonstrate that both God and Savior are being applied to the one person, Jesus Christ. That is consistent with the context of Titus 2. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, as I mentioned, we have the same type of construction presented to us there. 
but we don't have much of a context to be able to base a conclusion on that as we have in Titus 2. But notice, 2 Peter 1.1 says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if we don't have as much context, can we be as certain of Peter's usage? I believe that we can be, because you will notice that Peter uses this kind of construction a number of times in his text. For example, if you look down at verse 11, we read, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. There, the Granville Sharp construction is Lord and Savior, and clearly, Peter is using both words of Jesus. Yet if you take the Greek of 2 Peter 1.11 and compare it to the Greek of 2 Peter 1.1, they are absolutely identical with just changing out the word Lord and God. And so clearly Peter is, in fact, identifying Jesus as our great God and Savior in 2 Peter 1.1. So we have Titus 2.13, we have 2 Peter 1.1, we have Romans 9.5, we have John 20.28, identifying Jesus with the name God, the word God. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 contains numerous references to the deity of Christ. We could spend all of our time just looking at this one particular chapter, but I want to look at one section of it because we're going to look at another section of it in the concluding portion of this study. But in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer is demonstrating the superiority of Jesus Christ to the old ways, to Moses, here even to angels themselves. And notice what he says in Hebrews 1, 6 through 8. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Hear what he's doing. All through Hebrews, we have this contrast. Jesus is the greater fulfillment. Jesus is greater than the old way. And so here in Hebrews chapter 1, at verse 6, he talks about, he's, in verse 5, he'd already asked the rhetorical question, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. These were words never said to angels. And then in that context, he says, and when he again brings the firstborn in the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. To worship someone is to demonstrate that they are truly deity. Now, that is not to say that there's not idolatry in the scriptures. But this term to worship is the same term that we have, for example, in the book of Revelation. And there we are all told to worship God. And when at one point the angel who has been showing John these great visions in the book of Revelation, when John bows down to the angel and he tries to worship the angel using the same term that's used here, the angel says, don't do that, worship God alone. And so angels are not to accept this kind of worship. And yet here, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 says, we are to worship Jesus Christ. And so it is in that context then, in contrasting Jesus to the angels who are mere winds, they are ministers of flame of fire, in contrast to that, he says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, some have actually tried to say, well, 
uh, that could actually be rendered, God is your throne forever and ever. But that would destroy the contrast that the writer is attempting to present. And given what we had in verse 6, what actually is found in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and as we'll see, the clear identification of Jesus as Jehovah in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, there is absolutely no reason in the context to see this as anything more than another place where that word God, the os, is being used of Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And here, this would be the Father referring to the Son as God in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, up to this point, all these references that have used the term God have been used in the New Testament. But there are prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And one of the most amazing is found in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And there we find these words in regards to the coming one. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these words were written seven centuries before the birth of Christ, 700 years before Christ was born in Bethlehem. And there it is said, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. A child will be born to us. That is the very word that is used of a, of a regular child and regular birth. Jesus truly took on human flesh. But then it says a son will be given to us. The son of God is given to us. Remember in Philippians 2, he voluntarily took on that human flesh. But then we look at the names. Notice one of the names is mighty God. El Gabor, mighty God. And some people say, well, yes, he's, he's a mighty God, but he's not the almighty God. Jehovah's Witnesses make that argument. Well, keep that in mind and just turn over to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. And there in a description of Jehovah, we have the words, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to El Gabor, the mighty God. Here within one chapter, Isaiah uses the exact same Hebrew words of Jehovah that he uses of the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So you cannot put any weight on mighty God and say that means something less than the almighty God unless you're willing to say the same thing about Jehovah. But very, very quickly, someone might say, wait a minute, that also said he's the eternal father. And you said the Bible never confuses the son and the father. That's true. But the father, son, and spirit are specific names that are revealed in the New Testament and the incarnation of Christ, not in the Old Testament. And that specific description found in Isaiah 9, 6, the Hebrew there is aviad, which means father of eternity. I believe that that's referring to the fact that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, the one who brings forth all things. We could expand upon that by looking at Colossians chapter 1 and seeing the parallels, but time prohibits us from doing so right now. And so what have we seen? John 20, 28. Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13, 2 Peter 1, 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, and Isaiah 9, 6, all use the name God or the word God, the description of Jesus as God. 
Now, John 1, 1 is probably where most people go when they immediately start thinking about the deity of Christ. And I think it's an excellent text. We looked at it uh, in the preceding program, but I just want to once again point out to it, point, point to it because it would seem that this is a text that uses the term God of Jesus, but it does so within the context of that book ending that we talked about earlier, when it says that the word was as to his nature, deity, that is the term theos, that is the term God. And here it is describing the very nature of the logos. He is deity. He is eternal. He has eternally been in relationship with the Father. These are all the assertions of John 1.1. And then we combine that with the description of Jesus as the unique God, monogenes theos, John 1.18, and you have two more references that use the word God of Jesus. And so here you have all of this testimony piled up in the text of Scripture. How do people get around these things? Generally, they do so in a couple of different ways. First of all, the, the liberal just simply dismisses these as later developments of Christian theology. In fact, it was the, the belief on the part of liberals that the deity of Christ developed very slowly over time that hundreds of years ago had them saying that the gospel of John could not possibly have been written in the first century. It must have been written in the second or even the third century. That theory sort of went down in flames once you started finding small manuscripts of the gospel of John that predate what their theory said it could even been written as. So the liberals basically say, well, this is doctrinal development. Jesus could never have believed these things. But those who try to take the position that the Bible is inspired, those who try to at least pretend that they believe that the Bible is an authoritative revelation, and yet they bring in these other beliefs to where they deny the deity of Christ, how do they try to get around these? Well, in essence, they go to texts that talk about Jesus and that differentiate him from the Father and say, see, Jesus isn't the Father. But of course, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't say that he is. And so to, pro to prove that Jesus is the Son and not the Father is not to deny his deity. Or they will say he is just a mighty God or a lesser God, but then that violates the first of the foundations that we already saw and could have proven much more in depth, and that is biblical monotheism. Fundamentally, when you boil it all down, there is no way around the biblical testimony to the deity of Christ that he is truly God. But as I said, this is only one of the forms of evidence that we have in regards to the deity of Christ. This is the uses of the term God of Jesus. Far more compelling, especially for Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you ever have the opportunity of speaking to Jehovah's Witnesses at your doorstep or something like that, far more compelling for them is the use of the term Yahweh of Jesus. You say, does the term Yahweh appear in the, in the New Testament? No, it does not, though Jehovah's Witnesses think that it does. But the New Testament writers are willing to take that divine name from the Old Testament, passages that are only about Yahweh, and apply them to Jesus in the New Testament. That is a demonstration that they did not blush. They were not embarrassed to confess that Yahweh himself had visited his people. Is that not what Emmanuel means, God with us? This is the greatest fulfillment of that prophetic name, that God is with us. He has entered into our very existence. 
And so if you want to especially demonstrate the deity of Christ to those who struggle with it, many of them are familiar with these texts and are somewhat prejudiced toward them. I have found it much more effective to go to another set of texts that demonstrate that the early church believed that Jesus was Yahweh. That gets past the prejudices, and that's the element of the study that we'll turn to next, Lord willing. Thank you very much.